go ahead and get started. Um, sure. Alex will go ahead and open us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time for uh, uh, part of your church to gather together to uh, focus on your word, to look into what you're saying to us, to help us to trust and obey, to encourage one another, to lift one another up as we uh, continue to seek you, because uh, we all realize that uh, we still are in need of a Savior. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, uh, as usual, I asked Karen to pick a song this morning. And, and as usual, I usually override it, but this morning I'm not going to. So Karen picked the, the 63rd Psalm this morning. Psalm 63. Does that mean she's getting better or you gave up? <laughs> a little above. <laughs> she's getting better and better every I asked day. him, are you going to use it this time? And I'm getting worn down. I'm getting the rough edges knocked off. <laughs> Psalm 63. Whoever gets there first can read it out. <clears throat> the Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Of Judah. O God, you are my God, early will I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live, I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, because you have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword, they shall be a, po a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory. But the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. Amen. So, um, the psalm is... is uh, was shared is that it's a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And I think it's appropriate to share it because we were just talking about Lake Havasu and, and dry weather and uh, all of that. But um, this is when he was uh, hiding from King Saul, even though he had been, um, he, there was, he knew that he was the, uh, the future king. Uh, and you, you see that in the language. He was still in a place where he was on the run and was hard-pressed, and uh, he ends up hanging out in the desert area. And what, what grabs my attention here is verses 6 through 8, because this is what it means to abide uh, in God, to be connected to the vine. It says, when I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. For you have been my help. In the, in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And that it's a, it's a condition of the heart that can, when you're hard pressed, um, and in the night watches, you know, when you're in that place of fear and doesn't look like anything good is going to happen, um, that you cling to the Lord and that you take refuge in the shadow of his wings. And that you know, just, you know, he gave us the image of um, a uh, protective bird where the, the, the little birds, the little chicks, um, are drawn underneath the, the mother's wings and protected. And so we have that image of God, and I would encourage you as we wrestle through some of the uh, 
ins and outs of the Gospel of John that you really meditate on that, really think about what does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean to abide in Him, to dwell in Him? Because we know that John's major theme in writing is that we might know who Christ is, that we would understand the revelation of God in a way where we understand that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, and that knowing Him, we might have life in His name. So in knowing Him and believing, uh, in other words, placing our trust in Him, um, we have life. And once we're in that place, once we're in the shadow of his wing, he wants us to, to cling to him, as it says here. To, I mean, that's a very descriptive word, to actually uh, draw as near as possible to uh, enjoy the fruit of communion. So we talk about communion a lot. And that'll happen this morning, by the way. So where we're at in John, and it's been... Uh, two weeks now since we got together. So you guys need to remind me, where were we? <laughs> I actually know, but I'm asking you. <clears throat> where did we leave off two weeks ago? Five, uh, 5.25. 5.25, so we didn't get past that. Oh, wow, I thought we were farther along. <clears throat> of course, I always think that. <coughs> so... Um, as, I, as I mentioned that uh, I would share every week and I'm going to go ahead and read it even though I just stated it I'm going to go ahead and read because I want everybody to understand that John is very purposeful in his writing that um, he could have written a lot of different things and he was in, actually in a position of influence within the emerging church at that time but it says in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, it says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his, of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing he may have life in his name. <clears throat> so what he's sharing is um, what sometimes is called uh, the signs. That, and what are, what are signs about? What is a sign? A miracle. Pardon? A miracle. Um, in one uh, understanding of sign would be miracle. And so when I outlined the book, um, I gave uh, the first portion of the book, which is actually written towards the end, a prologue. And then the bulk of, of uh, John is, is broken up into both a public in a private ministry, and in the private ministry, um, we have captured uh, the uh, suffering and uh, sacrifice of God on our behalf. And so, miracle is one way of understanding signs. We sometimes call this the book of signs or the book of miracles, and it's a public ministry. <clears throat> so what's the purpose of the sign, though? To show something that may not be evident by itself. Right. Right. So when you're driving down the road and you see the yellow uh, sign and it's got the, the squigglies on it, that's telling you that what you can't see is that you've got a road ahead that's going to be winding, right? And that you're supposed to pay attention to that and drive appropriately, which means you speed up in the curves and you slow down. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. Don't um, so the signs are intended to tell us something about the nature of God. And we've looked at uh, some of these signs. So the first occurred in Cana. So uh, and interestingly, John is not broken up like the other Gospels are, where you have a large portion that occurs in Galilee and then a very small portion that occurs in uh, Jerusalem, at least time-wise. Um, John actually has Jesus moving back and forth, which, if you think about it, that's exactly how a good Jewish man would have, especially in a rabbinic position, would have, would have behaved. 
He lived in the northern region in Galilee, and he would have traveled for the various feasts and festivals to Jerusalem. So it goes back and forth between uh, Jerusalem and Galilee. And this particular portion in John chapter 5 is taking place in Jerusalem. But the first signs that took place were in Cana in Galilee. And so I'll just bring up uh, the map real quick, and we'll take a look at where that is, just to give you guys some geographic context. So, so, then, so then that signs are more than miracles is shown in the fact that Nicodemus came to Jesus before he ever went to Canaan. And right. He says, no man, you know, these signs that you are doing, uh, obviously it's what Jesus is saying that are signs, not the miracles that he's doing. Right, so the sign is, is uh, it's, an, it's revelation of God is kind mm-hmm. of what I was getting yeah. at. yeah. It's that it's intended to help uncover um, who God is for us. In fact, you actually see that in the purpose of John, in John chapter 1. Um, it says in John chapter 1, verse 18, it says, No one has seen God at any time. Has anybody in here seen God? No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And that word explain is uh, the idea of exegete. He's the, so there's two different ways of approaching the context of text, of uh, the text of the Bible. One is to bring your theology into it and then find a bunch of proof texts to support your theology. That's called eisegesis. Hmm. Then the other way is where you actually um, study the text, try to understand uh, both the, the history and uh, the context geographically and all everything that's going on with this people group such that you can uncover the principles about God. So uh, exposing or uncovering. And that's what Jesus is. He's the one who exegetes God for us. He reveals God to us. In fact, to the point where he can say that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he's going to say that. And when he, set, when he does, people kind of stand back and say, well, who do you think you are? Right? Um, so the, the point of the, the sign is that it would reveal who God is to us. And we understand that the, the signs in Cana were about understanding purification and joy. The source of purification and the source of joy is God. He has... Uh, the, within him, the power and uh, both power coupled with will to do, uh, make a good creation and to put life into creation and to do that not uh, in order to like a, a God with a, uh, an, you know, an interest in dissecting the creation like I think of the way that kind of young scientists work with the magnifying glass and the ant, right? And it's not that at all. God actually wants to enjoy communion with his creation. So he breathes life into it, he sustains that life, and it's about being in a joyful communion with him. And so you see that in the miracle of the sign in Cana, it's about bringing joy to a wedding, right? Uh, and the joy is, you know, wine is one of those signs of joy um, that we see. And that it's not just joy for a time, but it's unending joy. When you get to the story with Nicodemus, um, we see that God isn't about um, leaving us where we're at in our fallen state, but rather he's about redeeming us through rebirth. And that Jesus is the source of that as well. It just as uh, God and Jesus is the source of, of joy and true purification in what we saw in the wedding ceremony, he is the source of life through birth um, in being able to cause us to be reborn. So, and it says, no man causes himself to be born. We read that again in the prologue. John's trying to remind us we, we are totally without power, but God is totally um, powerful and desires, has the will 
to bring life to us. And that's what that story about Nicodemus is about. And then he further clarifies that with some interaction uh, with John the Baptist and helping us understand that a little bit further. When we get to the story of the woman at the well, what's that about? Again, it's about that communion with God such that God actually dwells within us. Whoever consumes this water will have a well of life springing up from within. And it's not just, again, for a season, but it's an eternal living water. When we get to John chapter 5, we see that it's, uh, Jesus is not just the source of uh, purification and joy, the source of life and rebirth, um, the source of living water, but we're going to see that he's also the source of healing. Right? So he has the ability to take that which is broken and make it whole. And what I point out in that is that healing is always temporary. It's always for a season. When God goes to make us truly whole, he has to recreate us. We are recreated as a new creature. And we read that in the New Testament um, in several places, that the work of God uh, ultimately is not in this creation, but we are actually going to be restored for a new creation, or re- we're going to be we're reborn for a new creation. That our eternal life is going to be as He intended it, not as we experience it right now, which is broken. We we have um, brokenness in the world. So when I look around me, no matter how good a day it is, um, I still have a sense of longing or something's missing from the world. In our best day, we still fall way fall short of where God intended things to be. And we kind of know that. We know that it's not right. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And so uh, we understand that there is healing, that God does work in this world, but that that is for a season. And so we have the story about the man who um, was uh, crippled for a long period of time, and he was waiting for uh, the stirring of the waters at Bethsaida that he might be uh, moved into the water and healed. Jesus comes along and heals the man, and he does it on the Sabbath. So not only do we see that these signs are intended to reveal to us the nature of God and um, purification and joy and in rebirth and in living water, that, that uh, expression of actually communion with God inside and in healing, um, we're, we're also seeing that there's something broken that is really hard to put your finger on. You know, it was one thing for the man to be crippled. That was very visible to, to be restored to being able to walk again. Pick up your, your bed and walk. But there was something more insidious that was going on that Jesus needed to address. And that had to do with this idea that, um, uh, of righteousness, what it means to be righteous. And in, in many ways, what happens is, is that once we're uh, involved with a relationship with God, we get introduced to him, and we see the holiness of God, and we see the requirement the um, by its basic nature, when you come into a relationship with someone and you see that they're greater than you, it shows your inferiority, right? When you come into a relationship with God and you see the holiness of God, you see your unholiness. And that puts a requirement on you to be holy as he is holy. And we actually see that as a command in the Old Testament. Be holy for I am holy. And we expect that that command is something that we could actually fulfill, but it's not. We don't have the power to do that, just like we don't have the power to cause ourselves to be born. We don't have the power when we're unholy to make ourselves holy. But nonetheless, we experience the sense of that requirement. And so when we get involved in this relationship with God and we start understanding his holiness and our unholiness, the first thing that we want to do is put together a checklist of holiness so that we can become holy. 
And that's exactly what Judaism had become. Um, at that point in history, um, you recall that uh, God had revealed himself to Abraham first. Then he had revealed himself to Isaac, Abraham's son. Then he had revealed himself to Jacob, Isaac's son. And you see this uh, progressive revelation. And as, uh, as Alex can attest, we're going through Genesis and, on, uh, on Friday night. And Genesis is a book about transformations. It's a book about these people who have a great misunderstanding and through an encounter with God are transformed. And Jacob is, is the classic guy that had a misunderstanding about God and his creation. And he's a man of the world. He's figured it all out. He is the ultimate schemer. He schemed the schemer of schemers, right? His uncle Laban, he beat him. And he was got to the point in life where he was fully successful according to the world. And he recognized that he didn't have it. And he was on a journey back to uh, the place that God had called him. He heard still that calling of God and was on the journey back when he decided that he could go no further until he actually had an encounter with God. He wrestled with God. He said, you know, if it costs me everything, I will not quit. And that Jacob, Jacob as we read about in that wrestling match with God, actually uh, comes to the place where he sees the face of God at a place called Peniel, which means face of God. And um, whether we understand that as a, a visual encounter or we understand it as a spiritual encounter, as many of us, as we've come into God's presence and we experience that spiritually, he came to the point where he no longer called him uh, Yahweh, the God of his fathers, but he called him my God. So our understanding of what it means to be in communion with God is captured there. And we see this continuing transformation to the point where God addresses the whole holiness issue and the whole death issue, the separation issue from him. And that we see that progression up through Jesus. right? And what's happening is that Jesus, it isn't just enough to heal the man. He needs to address the root problem that people believe that they can be righteous, that they can be their own king, that they can declare what is right and good apart from God. That's what happened in the garden. That's what went wrong was that um, temptation was presented and the temptation was that if you eat this apple, you will be able to declare what is good and right. You will know. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And if you just had that kind of control of your destiny, you would be, you would be okay. You wouldn't be dependent upon God. You would have life within yourself. And, and, and how much of that is true? Can you really live apart from God? He, he gives you the very breath that you take. Um, do you have life in yourself? No, you don't. And yet what self-righteousness declares is that you do. You are, your, you are the master of your universe. You are the king. And what religious systems had built up at that point in time was a way to become your own king, a way to become self-righteous. It was a checklist of things to do in order to become holy. And Jesus challenged that. That's what we see that he's going to challenge in this these next sections. He first starts out with challenging um, the institutions of Judaism, the institution of the wedding, the institution of the temple, the institution of rabbinic teaching, and the institution of tradition. Right? That whole Jacob's well thing. Then he goes on to what has been corrupted within religion. He, the first thing he takes on is he takes on the Sabbath. What's the Sabbath really about? Is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? God is continuing working on the Sabbath. That's part of the argument that he makes. So he's going to continue working on the Sabbath. 
God does not cease activity just because it's a particular day of the week. But what the Sabbath is about is about understanding who God is and entering his rest. The Sabbath was made for man, as we're going to find out, um, and not for God. It isn't part of a checklist of holiness. If you do these practices, you don't carry your bed, you don't walk so far, you don't prepare a meal, these types of things that they would put on the checklist to be righteous, um, it isn't about that at all. It's about relationship with God. And what happens is, is that the religious leaders of that day accused Jesus. They said, you are breaking the law. And Jesus gives a defense. And the defense that he gives is that basically he's doing the work of the Father. He has the knowledge of the Father. He has the power of the Father. And he has uh, the assignment from the Father as judge to execute that power. And that the only way that that could happen is if he was like the Father, if he was actually the Son of God. And that um, the evidence of that is that the Son of God has life in himself, just as the Father has life in himself. Now, nobody in this room can claim that they have life in themselves. You're wholly dependent upon God for your first breath to your last breath. And that's just the physical nature of reality. When you get to spiritual reality, you're wholly dependent upon him for the living spirit that he gives you. And he desires to be in communion with you, right? So that's what the son, he's given his defense, and then he gives uh, specific evidence to support his defense. So an accusation is made against him, a defense is given, and now he's providing the warrant or the evidence that supports his defense. And that's what we see in uh, starting in verse 30 of chapter 5. What Jesus says, he says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So he's making that statement about his behavior is based upon... Um, the, the role of judge that he has within the Godhead. And he says, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. So the first thing he wants to do is present the witness of himself. He says, this is the witness that I have from God. Then he's going to present the witness of others testifying about him. Because there's a uh, under their religious system, there was a statement that um, you could not uh, support an accusation against a person on the testimony of a single witness alone. You had to have multiple witnesses in order for that accusation to be validated. So he says, there is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. That's John the Baptist. So you recall that John the Baptist was given a particular mission from God. That mission was to point the, the Messiah out, to make straight the paths for the king that was coming, right? To um, call people to repentance as part of that making straight, and then to, um, when Jesus is presented to fulfill all that God had asked him to do, he actually baptized Jesus. And we see at that point that a revelation was given that this is the Son of God. We're going to see that here in a second, that there was an actual testimony of God himself about Jesus at that point. And that when disciples that John had brought up and schooled came to him, John pointed to Jesus and says, that's the one. That's the Lamb of God. This is the one that the Bible's been telling you about. This is the one that I've been telling you about. That's the one. Follow him. It says, John has testified to the truth, but the testimony which I receive is not from man. But I say these things so that you may be saved. In other words, he doesn't need a man's testimony. But he's going to point out that not only does he have God's testimony within him and the works that he's doing in judgment, but he also has the testimony of man who was appointed by God. And it says, he says of John, he was the lamp that was burning and was shining. <clears throat> and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So 
he gives the testimony of John as one of his pieces of evidence. He says, but the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. So at this point, they had heard about him. They had heard the revelation. They had seen the signs. So um, what he did at Cana was in public. right? What he did in... Uh, uh, in Jerusalem, when he turned over the, the table in the temple and his teaching there was in public. So he had a public ministry that showed that what he was doing was the work that God would do. I mean, if God came to earth, which he did, what would he do? He would do exactly what Jesus was doing. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, the very works that I do, they testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. And you have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. So in this, he's making a statement that um, the Father himself has testified. And the Father did. Do you remember when we read about the baptism of Jesus? And Jesus, um, when he was baptized, we go back a, a couple of... Uh, Let's take a look here. <clears throat> okay, it says in chapter 1, this is John, and you can find this in the other uh, Gospels as well. John is testifying about Jesus, uh, saying that uh, in verse 31 he says, I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel like I came baptizing in water, John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descend as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. <clears throat> and if we look at the cross-references to that, what you'll see is the, the story of Jesus' baptism. When John is he's giving a testimony, this is what I saw. I saw the, the Spirit as a dove come down upon him, and the voice of God actually spoke uh, in the clouds and said, This is my Son. Pay attention to him. We see the same thing at the Mount of Transfiguration. God actually speaks... Um, even though men can't see him, he speaks in a way that is audible and detectable by humanity, um, testifying as to who Jesus is. Um, so I, I see you throwing up your shoulders there. Let's, let's give some cross-references to this story and other, other accounts here. Let's take a look at uh, Matthew 3.16. So we understand 
that when he gives this support in John chapter 5, he's saying, um, he's saying, I have this testimony from John. John testified that this is true. Also, those that were standing there heard the voice of God. Right? Um, it says, and the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. That's what he's referring to. And you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him who's, uh, whom he sent. So Jesus is now kind of turning the table as he's presenting the warrant, the evidence that supports his defense against the accusation. He's turning the table and accusing them. He's saying, um, you would know this if you actually had a relationship with God. You would have heard his voice. You would have heard his testimony of me. But you didn't because you have no relationship with God. So Jesus is now starting to dig. He's starting to get at what the root problem is. That these people who thought they had a relationship with God had no relationship with God. That's a scary place to be. And every single one of us should ask that question very soberly. Am I just going through a religious practice? Am I just turning the crank in this uh, uh, cosmic vending machine? You know, I put in my quarter and I dialed in my selection. How come I don't have my coat, God? Right? Is that what we're doing? And that's what Jesus is questioning these people that are accusing him. Saying, you're not the son of God. He's saying, well, if you had a relationship with God, you would have heard his voice in testimony. And then he goes on and he gives another witness. So he's given the witness of uh, the work that he's doing, the witness of John, the witness of, of the Father himself. Now he goes on he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. So he's saying, if you actually read your own own revelation that was recorded for you from Moses on, you would know that he's writing about me. He's writing about this day. He says, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I did not receive, I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you have not, you do not have the love of God in yourselves. In other words, they were religious professionals. They weren't, um, they weren't there because they had the heart for it. They were there because that was their job. That's a scary place to be. You know, there are some that have the job and have the heart for it. In fact, they have the job because they have the heart for it. But then there are those that have the job and no heart for it. And that's what he's accusing these guys of. You have the, the job of being a religious leader for the people. And you're supposed to be bringing people to me. And you don't know who I am. Scary. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Wow. He totally turned the table on. And... If they were like Nicodemus and were honest enough to come to him and say, I don't get it, he would have had a totally different response. But they didn't say, I don't get it. They, they accused him and they stuck by their accusation in the face of five different evidences given that his defense was sound. What was distracting them? How come they didn't understand him? How come they... They weren't his sheep who didn't know his voice, or they weren't his sheep. Was it just traditions of men that had been built up over time to help them feel righteous? Well, I think it's actually the very nature of sin itself. So sin says, um, what the nature of original sin was, is that you are God. Right? So that the serpent says, you will not die. That's right. You because you have life in yourself. God, knowing good from evil. Yes. And so in that, you're separating yourself from God. You're saying, I can know what is good. In the sense that I can declare it. 
Now, when we understand the declaration of goodness, it is, a, it is the revelation of God himself. God is good. All the time. That's why it gets back to Job. Because what's Job's final correct conclusion? Right. Wherever you went. And he goes, I'll shut up. He keeps talking, but, I mean, he finally yeah. gets, I think, at that point. And, that's, and, and so Job, though, <clears throat> Job had enough faith that he was willing to say, even if he slay me, I will still trust him. That's so trust he didn't. Beyond understanding. It's trust beyond understanding. And that's actually what God calls us to. What is the nature of faith? So a revelation is given. We're given enough revelation that we know uh, that there is a God. And the proof of that is that the sun came up this morning. And if any of you guys saw the sunrise, it was a spectacular sunrise, right? Um, God is painting every day new. It's new every morning. And in that, um, this life doesn't happen as a, a chronology. I mean, we put it together that way. But it happens in an instant of, of communion with God. And ultimately, when we get to eternal life, and, and I will make a statement, and this is kind of hard to understand, it isn't about the quantity of days that you'll have. You'll truly have unending days. You'll have an infinite quantity. But you'll have uh, an infinite quality. You'll actually be in God. Not God himself. But you'll be, he will be the light of your city. He will be um, the provider of the healing waters and the fruit that you eat that makes you whole. He will, there will be no need for all of these things that we think that we need. Because he fulfills all. He provides, he protects, he serves. He, it, our communion with him will be infinitely rich. We won't be separated by us getting in the way. There'll be no striving. There'll be no striving. That's what it says. So when we read Hebrews chapter 4, it talks about those who strive to enter God's rest. Well, God already provided the rest. That's what the Sabbath was about. was about... Uh, a time of entering into God's rest. Now, it isn't that God ceased working, but what he ceased doing on the seventh day was new creative activity in the sense of we didn't have uh, animals that had never existed, something from nothing being created, rather. What God said is what I made is very good. In fact, I made a creature that has some of the attributes that I have, communicable attributes, that can enter into communion with me and actually enjoy life. What is the, uh, what is the purpose of life? To know God. And enjoy, enjoy Him forever. And enjoy Him forever. Right? I think part That's of the question for humans is that because we're made in the image of God, we, that part of that you know, desire think that you can't be God. The, the temptation was, because there were attributes of man that were, in some instances, the same or similar to attributes of God, um, the ability to enter into moral reality, to make choices about good and evil, and to choose the good, which is God, and reject the evil, which is the lie, Right? Man legitimately had that choice. And when challenged, um, at the, that choice itself made man God. Uh, man believed it. That he had the ability to choose what was good and what was evil. That he had life within himself. He surely wouldn't die. He would be like God, having life within himself. Man believed it. And what I would say today is that the nature of sin, whether it's the most blatant sin of a guy robbing a bank and shooting somebody in the course of that, taking life. Um, you know, we think about these horrific crimes, right? And I'm, I'm just making one up off the top of my head. I, I haven't read the newspaper today. Um, or whether it's presenting yourself as wholly righteous apart from God, as a religious uh, professional, a religious hero, right? 
That's what the Pharisees had become. They were like an empty tomb. They looked good on the outside, but inside it was totally empty and dead. There was no life there. And that's what Jesus is, is addressing here. So, I mean, I agree with that, and far be it from me to defend <laughs> the, the religious uh, hierarchy of the Jews, you know, because I don't think that makes any sense at all. But this is recorded for us here, and there may be, well, what I've been thinking is a slightly different take on this. So, if I was a religious leader in this time, it's pretty clear-cut that anybody who calls themselves to, to be God is blaspheming. Yeah, that's why, true for, why would it be well, blaspheming? Wait, wait, that's true for everybody except Someone God, who really was. Who yeah. really was God. Yeah. So I think that's the difficulty here. Is there, and that's, I think, why you have these five witnesses thing that John lays out here, because he has to kind of help prove that, that he was, in fact, God. Because if I'm a religious leader, and one of the commandments is, you know, you, you can't, well, anyway, blasphemy is, right. was, a, was right. a big no-no, and anybody who did that would be sinning, except Jesus, <laughs> who yeah. can call out and call, call the heart uh, issue, like he does right. in 42, that you do not have the love of God in yourself. Right. I mean, that's how can you make that statement? Serious, you know. Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't want anybody to say that of me because it was like, wow, you know, that's that right. goes right, cuts it really quick. Um, and and they needed it here. I'm not saying they did, but I'm just saying that that they had other people rise up and claim things, you right. know, and and they were saying, no, 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 that no, that's blasphemy. <laughs> you know, you're right. Out. Yeah, right. and. and and so they're in this mode of uh, trying to protect, huh, yeah, whatever, the religion and, 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 uh, and the commandments. So, so is, it, is it a forgivable sin if um, someone in ignorance defends something that is untrue? That's basically, I think, the argument you're making. That this is a forgivable sin, that Jesus, Jesus should have <laughs> been not critical but rather more um, compassionate in helping educate them, like when Nicodemus. Well, that's what he's doing here. Is he, he's educating them in a way. Well, he is educating, uh, but he's also so accusing. Calling the question. Yeah, true. Forgive me, I don't want to contradict, but I, I, I think it's a mistake to assume that these men had altruistic and religious and true godly instincts. When obviously they didn't, because Jesus was slamming them. Right. But um, you know, we we think, well, if I was there, I would be. No, Jesus would have dealt with us differently. Right. <laughs> if we had a relationship with him, what he was doing was exposing. He was exposing, and right. and I, I think of it, it. It's so clear to me that the, the picture of cancer. You have a cell that mutates. It grows. It becomes a blob. And at some point, it becomes based part of the body, so the body doesn't reject it. Right. it. It feels normal, it feels right. And at some point, it begins to grow uh, blood vessels and things to get resources. And at some point, its life, it gets big enough that it can demand resources. And at that point, there's the division between the life of the body and the life of the cancer. And the cancer will suck the life out of the body. There's a division between the two entities. Right. And that's what's going on here is that you have the whole religious infrastructure which is now consuming the people as they're, it's like a sun in a black hole. The sun is filled with light and it gives life. And that's what Jesus was saying. Right. The black hole is nothing of itself. Right. And it consumes everything around it and sucks the energy out of it. And that's right. what was going on. And Jesus was exposing it. Right. So what's the solution when you find a cancer? To cut it out, to remove it completely, not just contain it, um, not to um, make it impotent, but to completely remove it because you can't 
make it impotent. It corrupts completely. It'll kill. Yeah, right. it has. It will kill. It, it is anti-life. Yeah, and so what Jesus is doing here, these people come to him, and the first reason that I know that um, this was a legitimate challenge of religion is because they're coming claiming one that he can't be the Son of God because nobody can be. They're presuming that. Um, if it was possible to become righteous, you could do it. And there isn't one righteous. Excluding the, the, uh, the possibility that God loved us so much that he would actually, the righteous one, come for us. Right? So they already said, no, there can't be a Messiah. There, there is no exclusion to this case. Nobody is God. This is blasphemy. The second thing that they said is, not only that, but you're doing this on the Sabbath. Now, was he doing a bad thing when he healed the guy? I would think, man, that's a good thing. Just like the guy, he picked up his bed and he says, wow, I think I'm going to go and do what the priest prescribes and give the offering at the temple. And that's where Jesus runs into him again. So when they come to him, and their accusation was not that he was doing something wrong. In the, in the healing, but that he did it on the Sabbath. That he was breaking a religious uh, taboo. And so in that sense, Jesus said, oh, that's cancer. And what, he's gonna, what you're going to see is that he's going to challenge not just the Sabbath, which happens to be the greatest of the festivals that they would uh, routinely keep, but he's going to challenge the Passover. He's going to challenge, um, and I listed them here, uh, tabernacles, those are two major uh, festivals that they needed to pay attention to, right? And they were all about entering into communion with God and the cancer had taken over. And so when Jesus turns the table on this, this is different than him turning the table and them saying, oh, I get it, I was wrong, please forgive me. Because if they would have said, please forgive me, he would have. And the evidence of that was when the man was lowered on the mat. He said, your sins are forgiven. Jesus had the power to forgive sins on earth. Thank goodness for that. So what's, being, what's happening here is he's saying, no, this thing is so insidious, it looks good, but it's not. This is going to kill you. There is no life in it. And so that's what he says next. He says... Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. He's taking the very thing that they misunderstood and saying, read it again. This is, this is the evidence against you. Right? And that what was it that Moses brought for them? He brought um, the declaration of what it means to be in a relationship with God, to actually be one of his people, to be a citizen of his kingdom. Moses had the audacity to stand up to the greatest king of the land, to the point where that king wanted to kill them all. And through a great deliverance of God, they were brought out in the midst, in the midst of that. We're going to see that in chapter 6. And then they were in the desert and God provided for them. Moses was the one that they had said, they said, yeah, there's this Moses guy, but remember, we're still building golden calves. We're still about doing this, or building our own God. And he's saying, read it yourself. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So, and, and I guess that's where we are today. If we don't believe what has been written for us, which is a special revelation, this is special, this is for us, to understand and know God more clearly, which is in addition to the general revelation, everything that we see and experience every day. So, the way I like to think about this is when I take a breath, that God is closer to me than that breath. And it's a miracle what happens in the lungs. Oh, 
I'm getting the hey, pay attention to the time, Dave. That one says I still got three minutes. <laughs> so the, the miracle of the lungs is that there's oxygen in the air and it's tied up in different forms. And when that gets sucked into our lungs through a miracle of, of, uh, of chemistry and muscles and all that kind of stuff, that, that it actually crosses a cell boundary and that oxygen is captured and put into our bloodstream and it's carried by um, specialized cells, right? That is a miracle. And God is closer to you than that boundary that gets crossed. He's closer to you than um, it talks about in Hebrews chapter 4. The Spirit of God is discerning and sharp, able to um, separate even the joint and the marrow. And if you think about that, the marrow actually flows continuously across the joint. It isn't localized in each bone, but rather it's part of your whole system. And how that actually occurs, nobody can quite tell you. But it does. It actually gets communicated. It says the Spirit of God is sharper, able to separate between the joint and the marrow. God is closer to you than your own breath. And when that's the general revelation, if you're honest and you think about it, there is no life. There is um, in itself. The universe came from nothing. It had to. It didn't just always exist. Carl Sagan is, forgive me, he was an idiot for saying the cosmos is all there ever is, all there ever was, and all there ever will be. To make the statement that everything that you see is life in itself is just it's ridiculous. That's general revelation. But if we neglect the special revelation that God's given us, that he said, you know, just in case you don't get it, which you won't, I'm going to come in person and I'm going to show you who I am. That's what this is about. And that these people in their religion didn't get it. It wasn't about being a Jew. And I'll tell you, it is not about being a Christian. It is about being in relationship with God. And that's what Jesus is, this is what John captured for us, that he wants us to understand. There is life in no other. It's more than just being in relationship with God, it's being in relationship with Jesus. Jesus is God. Right. So I, I use a general gods, term. Right? Pardon? There are other gods. People might take that what you just said. No, I would, I would, I would disagree. The revelation says there is only one God. Yes. And we understand that that God has revealed Himself in three persons. So that's what we talk about revelation. So this is not something that I could have created on my own, but rather God revealed it to me in his special revelation, in his word. And so we read Psalm 19, that's what it tells us about. Heavens declare the glory of God, general revelation. The word is perfect in instructions, right? So we, we understand that what Jesus is doing is he's trying to correct the greatest wrong. It isn't just about physical healing, because that is temporary. It's about real life. Let's go ahead and close here. Um, I really thought we'd get into chapter 6, but at least we got up to chapter 6. Um, the, the next story is about feeding 5,000. Um, and this is one that's caught in all of, the, uh, all of the gospel accounts. And there's a reason for it. Right? And John has a little bit different uh, approach to it. It isn't so much about the miraculous as it is about correcting and understanding of what the Passover was all about and that journey through the desert, which is where we started in Psalm 63. Yes? Cheryl just came in out of our class. I know her sister, their sisters, uh, are dying, and I was wondering if we could maybe lift them up in prayer. Yes. I don't know if that's what it was about. But. Yep. Um, you know, I usually close in prayer. Um, Talk, would you like to close us in prayer today? Or maybe Tim? 
Could you close us in prayer and, and lift up his sisters? Heavenly Father, we're grateful to you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word and through our Lord Jesus Christ, that he told the truth about you and that he now lives in us so that we might also tell the truth about you. And is in this understanding that we present to you the need for uh, this uh, lady who is, uh, Cheryl, who is uh, very, very ill and is dying. And we pray that you will also uh, comfort the sisters. May they be able to uh, recognize your hand at work in the midst of the difficulties of life that come along. We pray for your comfort for them. Now as we leave this place, help us to also uh, continue on in our relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.